Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you are encouraged and deepen in your love of Christ while enjoying this podcast. Here is this week's message. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 5, and uh, this first part of Ephesians is uh, one that, quite frankly, has as much relevance uh, to us today as it did to the Ephesians 2,000 years ago. In fact, I would say this is as relevant as Time Magazine this week. I don't know if any of you looked over Time, but you're probably aware that there is this tremendous struggle that is going on uh, within many of the mainline churches concerning human sexuality. In fact, just last week, the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church, the USA branch, voted on a report as to whether to ask the church to vote on the acceptance of sex outside of marriage, whether it be uh, for adult singles, uh, even for married couples, homosexuals, or even for teenagers. And thankfully that was voted down, but it just demonstrates the tremendous struggle that's going on in churches as they try to grapple with what are the guidelines for human sexuality. And this debate is not just localized to the Presbyterians. It's among the Episcopalians, uh, the United Methodist Church, the American Baptist, the Lutheran churches. And it led this week to a feature article in Time Magazine entitled, What Does God Really Think About Sex? That's an excellent question, isn't it? What does he really think about sex? Well, I went and I eagerly read the, the article, but unfortunately, God was never quoted in the article. I mean, the title kind of led me into that, but it didn't deliver. There were all kinds of uh, uh, statements on how denominations were voting. There were, there were a myriad of opinion polls, if you saw that, on what the American public thinks and what churchgoers think. And there were some statements by uh, different people of academic stature uh, in the article. But really, the article was what we people think about sex today. Uh, God was never interviewed, and there wasn't a single quote from him in that regard. And so this morning, just simply because the passage flows with the book that we've been studying, we come upon this passage that helps us answer that question. What does God really think about sex? Now, because of the age in which we live, and I want to make this as kind of a preamble to the message, and I'm going to have to move pretty quickly, but I want you to know some of you are not going to agree with what I have to say. And some of you are going to maybe even be offended. And it's not easy to walk through a passage like this, especially in a day in which we would like to cover up all that's going on and just say, let's don't talk about it. But as a minister of the gospel, I'm called to talk about it when it comes up in the scripture. And all I would ask from you, whether you agree or disagree, is that you would give the Scripture the opportunity to speak. And then when you leave, when the service is over, then you can think about it. And if you want to debate it, that's fine. But at least let us have a hearing this morning. If I were asked that question, what does God really think about sex, I don't think that I would take an opinion poll from our body. And I don't think that I would be giving you my opinion. I think my opinion basically is worthless on the subject. But I would like to do what I think 
all in the church of Jesus Christ has done for 2,000 years. What if you were to ask Martin Luther in the 16th century or John Calvin in the same century, or you were to ask uh, someone like John Wesley in the 18th century, or you were to ask the great theologian Augustine in the 4th century, or the devout Polycarp in the 2nd century, if you were to ask them, what does God think about sex? The last thing they would do is say, well, in my opinion, or they would say, well, the public thinks. See, that's the wrong direction for the church. might be for the public, but not for the church. When asked that question, all those great men would turn to this book and they would say, this is what God thinks about sex. And so that's what I want to do today, hopefully as faithfully and as accurately as I can. I want to read what he says in this regard. So read with me, starting in chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore be imitators of God and beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But do not let immorality or any impurity or greed even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. And do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret, but all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason, it says, awake sleeper and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Well, let me go back and walk through those verses and hopefully elaborate and explain them more fully in the next few moments. But I want to say, first of all, as we read those, this is not going to be an easy passage to preach. It's a very delicate and sensitive subject. But this passage takes us, first of all, back to Ephesians chapter 3 and that great prayer that Paul prayed that those believers in Ephesus would be, remember we called them inside-out Christians led by the Spirit of God? And he says, this is what I want to do. I want Christ to dwell in your hearts in a powerful way through faith. And for you to know that and know that in doing that, whatever he asks of you, you won't see those as rules or regulations or things to keep you from having life or fun or celebration. But you might see these things for what they really are, invitations to life and to real love and to intimate relationships and to power in your life. You might see it that way, but you have to see it by faith on the front end 
and then experience it, and then on the back end you'll look back and say, what God asked of me, however difficult, however hard, however against the script, uh, culture in which we live, he knew what he was talking about. That's the invitation to the inside-out Christian. And so with that in mind, we proceed into chapters 4, 5, and 6 with all these practical things. And in chapter 4, if you remember, we looked at just kind of what are healthy relationships between people. And in chapter 5, it breaks down into intimacies between people. Sexual intimacies, then the intimacy between us and the person of God through the Spirit of God, and then finally, in uh, chapter 5, starting in verse 22 to 33, the intimacy of marriage. So this is how to have an intimate relationship, a healthy, powerful, secure relationship. And first of all, he's got to tell us what that means as it regards our human sexuality. Now, if you look on your outlines, you see that our passage breaks down around a call in verses 1 and 2, and then a challenge, and then a charge. And I'd like to move through each of those, which takes us through this text. First of all, the call is to love as Jesus loved. See, it says there, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you. Now, you know, love is oftentimes just a somewhat of a, a, a vague statement that has a very difficult time for us to get a handle onto. Uh, it tends to be in the clouds of feelings for most of us. And if somebody asks us to define love apart from a feeling, sometimes we'd have difficulty really elaborating on what love is. In this first opening statement in verses 1 and 2, as simple as it's made, it really tells us two things about love. You might just jot these down. The first is this. Love is specific, responsible actions. Now, how do I know that from the text? Well, I know it from the word therefore. Therefore. If you'll notice in the text, anytime you see a therefore, it's usually a summary word of information that he's previously spoken about. And when you get to verse 1, which is really a transition statement between chapters 4 and 5, he's saying, therefore, love is Jesus' love, but he's already told us what love is in specific, responsible action phrases. For instance, look back up in verse 25 of chapter 4. He says, if you really love your neighbor, then you're going to speak the truth to him. Love is speaking the truth, not gossiping, not exaggerating, not jumping to judgments preconceived. It's speaking the truth. Verse 26 says, love is anger expressed appropriately. Maybe you haven't thought of love that way. In verse 28, it says, love is a person who has decided to work an honest vocation, but to work in such a way that he can actually help others. Now, that's a radical thought in 1991, that someone's going to work even harder or more aggressively or more creatively, not so they can get more, but so that they can have extra to give away. Well, would that be great? But that's love, defined as specific actions of responsibility. Then finally, in verses 29 and 30, he talks about love as building up one another and encouraging one another and forgiving one another. Just the power of forgiveness in order to have these healthy relationships, but these healthy relationships are loving relationships. And that's why he says in verse 1, therefore, this is how you love as Jesus loved. This is how you become an imitator of God. 
Because love is responsible, specific actions. Second thing he says is that love requires a sacrifice. If you look at the last part of verse 2, it says, Just as Jesus loved and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God. Question is, is what is sacrificed? See, to love, to really love, real love, not the pseudo-love, but the real love of the world, to do that, something in every person must die if you're going to really love someone else. Now that may sound like bad news because no one likes the word sacrifice today or commitment. Those are negative phrases. But for you to truly love, something has to die. And according to the scripture, the part that dies when you love rightly is the old selfish fallen nature that's within every man and woman. That's what has to die. And the more that old self dies, the more that the new self gets expressed. And so love not only benefits the one being loved, but love also redeems the person loving, doing the rightful loving. And it does so by redeeming that person from his old nature, his whole old self-absorbed toxic self that would rather just keep making his world smaller and smaller and smaller around just himself. Now that's where pseudo-love takes you. Because pseudo-love, the bottom line is selfishness, self-love. But to give yourself away keeps expanding that, but to expand into new horizons means something must die in me, and that's my old self. And that's good. And that sounds great to me, but it's also hard because something dies and that's painful. Our world knows nothing of that. It knows nothing. It would rather keep love very vague, very feeling oriented. It would like to keep it with as minimum responsibilities, as few responsible actions as is necessary. And it would like to keep our fallen nature enthroned, not entombed. And that's what makes it death. Now with that said, notice verse 3, because after he said this is what love is, love is these responsible specific actions and it requires a death, a sacrifice, he comes to this word but, and for the rest of the passage he's going to compare that real love with the not so real kind of love. And that's where it brings us to face to face with human sexuality. Look at verse 3, he says, but do not let immorality or any impurity or greed even be named among you as is proper among saints. You know, in saying that to the Christ, these Christians, these young Christians in Ephesus, that was a startling statement. And it was also a very brave statement issued against the culture of the day. Uh, most of you probably do not get a chance to read books about the first century, and, uh, and, and yet I have to in the particular ministry that I'm in, and every time I go back and I do research in the first century culture, I'm just amazed at how the first century so parallels the age in which we live. I want you to know that when Paul made this statement in verse 3, oh, they love the first two verses. But when he came to verse 3 and he said, but do not let immorality or any impurity, 
Before he even finished the sentence, I can tell you these young Ephesian believers were going, what? You got to be kidding. Really, you got to be kidding. Let me read you just a statement from William Barclay, the great English historian and theologian about the first century. He says, and I quote, it's been said that chastity was the one new virtue which Christianity introduced into the world. It is certainly true that the ancient world regarded sexual immorality so lightly that it was no sin at all. It was expected and an expected thing that a man should have a mistress. In places like Corinth, the great temples were staffed by hundreds of priestesses who were sacred prostitutes and whose earnings went to the upkeep of the temple. In his speech, Pro Kaleo, Cicero pleads, if there is anyone who thinks that young men should be absolutely forbidden the love of harlots, he is acting extremely severe. I am not able to deny the principle that he states. In other words, I think he's saying the right virtue. That's the right statement. But he is at variance not only with the freedom of what our own age allows, but also from the concessions of our ancestors. Notice concessions. When indeed was this forbidden love not done? When did anyone ever find fault with it? When was such permission denied young men and women? When was it that that, that which is now lawful was not un, uh, that which is now lawful was not lawful? Cicero is saying that no Roman in his senses would forbid a young man to consort with prostitutes. When Paul set this stress on moral purity, he was erecting a standard which the ordinary heathen had never, ever dreamed of. That is why he pleads with them so earnestly. We must remember out of what kind of society these Christian converts had come, and we must remember what kind of society they were now encompassed in. There is nothing in all history like the moral miracle which Christianity brought. You know, Ephesus was even more wicked than the rest of the ancient world. Ephesus was a city in which uh, sexual license was given to all people. Ephesus was to the ancient world what San Francisco is to Americans, only worse. Or what Bangkok is to the Far East. Or what Amsterdam is to the Europeans. It was a place of explicit and gross sexual indulgence and perversion. And it made its trade out of those things. If you went to Ephesus, there was this great multi-breasted statue of this goddess named Diana. God, this goddess of the goddess of life and fertility. It was one of the great wonders of the ancient world. And uh, people all around the ancient world bought these silver statues that were made, these icons that were made in Ephesus and carried these little statues of Diana in their homes and in their chariots. She was a goddess of fertility and life. And the high point of worship in a temple, in the temple, was to have sexual intercourse. That was the high point. So sexual freedoms were, 
were, were considered absolutely proper. It was considered religious in Ephesus. And here's Paul saying, don't do it. Can you imagine what kind of courage that took? Paul was a unique man with a unique message, but his message was not himself. His message was of God. In fact, when he was preaching the same message to the Thessalonians, he ends that particular passage with this. He who rejects this message is not rejecting man, but rejecting God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. Well, let's go on and look at the message in verses 3 through 14. I mean, here these people were, and they were feeling unbelievable peer pressure. They had a heritage in the sexual immorality. They're saying everybody's doing it. Nevertheless, Paul says, God has consistently proclaimed from Genesis to Revelation that sex outside of marriage defiles and harms our basic humanity. And what's worse, when practiced, it cuts us off from fellowship with God. Notice down in verse 14, that's why he says to these people who are still struggling, just like some of you, there's no difference, we're the same. Some of you are saying, I don't know if I want to hear this. They were struggling. But here's what he says, awake, sleeper, and rise from the dead. Now, were these people dead spiritually? No. Back in Ephesians chapter 2, it says that the world is dead in its trespasses and sin, but you've been made alive. But see, the problem is you've gone to sleep in this area. That's where you are. When someone's asleep, they look like someone who's dead, don't they? And that's the kind of metaphor he's playing off of. And he said, you know, when you're involved in these things and when you're indulging in these things, the thing that you need to know is the power that the Spirit of God wants to bring to a life has been turned off. And I want you to awake and not participate with those who are dead so the power can come on. And the way he expresses the power coming on, he says at the last line, and Christ will shine on you. That is, He'll meet you. He'll heal you. He'll warm you. He'll encourage you. That's what He'll do. But He won't do that when you've got your eyes closed to these things that are keeping you from the intimacy and the life that He intended for you. I think it's no accident that the very church denominations who are seeking to expand the sexual borders past which the Scriptures expressly state are the same denominations who are losing thousands of members every year. You see, the power and the blessing and the presence of God has been turned off because He will not fellowship with sleepers who are in this area. Well, Paul goes on and he sets forth four very good reasons to wake up. And there's some blanks on your outline that you might like to fill in, but let's look at the first because they follow in 3, 4, 5, and 6. He says in verse 3, But do not let immorality or any impurity or even greed be named among you as is proper. The first is this, sex outside of marriage is not proper. It's not proper. Now that seems odd. It just seems odd to me that it seems odd that I have to say that. But in the day and age in which we live, that's what it feels. It feels odd because if anything is being challenged in all quarters of our society, and we're bent on this, it's to give us freedom for our passions. 
We say we've got to discipline our minds in school, and we've got to discipline our bodies in athletics, but we will not submit to the disciplining of our passions in the age in which we live. And it's being challenged in all quarters, as I've said. But he says, Paul says, Jesus Christ says, it's not proper. And I believe every person, whether they're a participant or not, knows in their heart that it's not. But there's so much pressure. So much pressure. He uses three words, immorality, impurity, and greed. Let's look at each one of those. Immorality is just the word pornea, from which we get pornography. It speaks of any illicit sexual relationship, whether it's between a man and a woman or a man and a man. He says, God says, you can't do it. It's wrong. Then he mentions the word uncleanness, which is more of a, of a general word. And, and uh, maybe I can illustrate that because at summer spree, some of the kids were saying, well, if you can't have sex, because that's where the kids really are. If you can't have sex, what can you do? How far can you go? And I think Paul's answer here is, anything that when you're finished makes you feel unclean, you shouldn't participate in. Anything when you walk away, you feel dirty. You feel used. You feel, you feel like you, you pressed it. Paul would say, that's wrong. That's defiling the Spirit of God within you. And then he uses the word greed. You know, that seems odd here to put immorality, impurity, and greed together, but I think what he's mentioning here is that, is that when someone says to you, man or woman, because it works both ways today, doesn't it? Says to you, I love you, let's have sex. What the Scripture would say is, you don't know what love is. What you're doing is you're saying, I'm greedy for you. And I want your body. When, um, when I was at uh, Pacific University in Oregon, had a chance to speak to a human sexuality class, and, and uh, some of the students, particularly one girl, really wanted to argue hard that if two people love each other and express that love, whether they're married or not, they can have sex. But see, that plays right in to our selfish nature and our irresponsibility, particularly for men. And I could see some of the guys smiling, so I just simply asked, I said, how many of you guys would tell a girl you love them in order to go to bed with them? And every hand went up. See, when somebody says, I love you, let's have sex, it's not love. It doesn't even meet the definition of love that we looked at in verses 1 and 2. Remember, what is love? Love is specific, responsible actions. And what else is love? Love is sacrificing part of yourself. That's what real love is. Now, that's not a rule. It's just a definition. But it's the definition, it's the window or the door through which people find safety, security, trust, loyalty, and an intimate relationship for life. But you have to believe it by faith. The Spirit of God has to ring true in your life saying, that's really what it is. Anything else is not love. What anything else is, is just a line. It's just a line to get what you want because lust is greed. It's not love. So he says it's not proper. Then, then in verse 4 he says it's not fitting. Sex outside of marriage is not fitting. It says and there must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting 
which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. What does he mean by that? Well, I think he's just bringing up in his mind, especially with the word filthiness, those things which inspire and incite sexual immorality. Things that are filthy. And in his mind, Paul is saying, why get involved in those things? Whether they be pornography or explicit movies of all ratings, whether it be discussing sexual perversions, indulging in dirty stories, he's just kind of covering the gamut. But he says, what's the point in getting involved in those things? What do they do for you? How do they advance you to the place where you'll experience real love with another person? Or are they just a detour that's going to take you down to a dead end of lust and greed? How do they really advance the cause of real love that you want? And I know of no person in this room who doesn't want to have another person say, I love you, and then mean by that, I'm going to commit to you. I'm going to sacrifice for you. I'm going to be loyal to you. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to give you my trust. I'm going to protect you. Some of you maybe have watched Michael Medved on PBS. He's a well-known uh, movie critic. He has the little show Sneak Previews on PBS. Yale graduate. He's written a number of books. He is currently waging what I call a very lonely and unpopular war as a movie critic with other movie critics around what he calls, and I quote, the glorification of ugliness. Now that hit me because when I read verse uh, 4 and it said filthiness, in Greek that word filthy is used most places in the New Testament for ugly. Ugliness. Let there be no ugliness. Listen to what Medved said. He says, in the visual arts, in literature, in film, in music, both popular and classical variety, ugliness has been enshrined as the new standard. We now accept the ability to shock as a replacement for the old ability to inspire. Is that not true? Now, you know why our culture needs the ability to shock? Because we're bored. You see what happens? The ability to inspire comes because people believe that there's something higher to live for in life than themselves. They believe that there's a God. They believe in virtue, they believe in direction, and they believe in eternal accountability. But wipe those things away. Take those absolutes off the surface of the earth. And what you're left is with a hopeless people, whether they think it that way or not, who are trying to get the ultimate stimulation. And finally, the ultimate stimulation of a culture ultimately results in blood, guts, gore, and sex. And Paul wrote to a culture in the first century, the Romans, who were engorged with blood, lust, and sex because they were bored. Just shock. Just shock me. Shock me in a greater way so I can have a little relief from my hopeless boredom. That's where we are today. Listen to Medved. He talks about one of the movies in 1990, The Cook, The Thief, the, His Wife, and Her Lover. And he says, and I quote, This is not a film for the faint of heart or the delicate of stomach. It begins with a scene showing the brutal beating of a naked man while the main character gleefully urinates all over him. It ends with that same character slicing off a piece of a carefully cooked and elegantly prepared human corpse. 
in the most vivid and horrifying scene of cannibalism ever displayed in motion pictures. Naturally, the critics loved it. Karen James, New York Times, hailed this movie as brilliant. Two leading film critics, giving their coveted thumbs up, said it was one of the best. Richard Corliss of Time Magazine went even further and described the film as exciting, extraordinary, excellent. That's the glorification of ugliness. But it's not part of the church. No ugliness, no pandering, empty fantasies of illicit sex should undercut for the Christian the exciting opportunity to discover the wonder and the beauty and the glory of the real thing. But the inner man has to respond, not because it's a rule, but because it's a hope. He knows it to be true. He wants to experience it. Third, sex outside of marriage has future implications. Look at verse 5. It says, For this you know, and you might even underline these words, with certainty, with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now he's speaking of unbelievers, but he's, as he gets to verse 14, he says, You're doing just what unbelievers are doing. And here's what I want you to know, and it doesn't explain it in great detail. So your imagination is left here to think about it, but that is this. Any Christian, man or woman, who continues in sexual immorality of any kind, whether they know it or not, they are sacrificing part of their future estate in eternity. Now what that means fully, I can't tell you. But I can say, if this is just a passage to the real thing, the last thing I want to sacrifice is the real thing. And mourn, because I gave my life to something that was faithless, that I wouldn't believe in, not because it wasn't said, but because I didn't want to hear it, for something that's eternal. Sex outside of marriage has future implications. Then look at verse 6. Lastly, sex outside of marriage has implications right now. It says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes, present tense, not will come, in some future day, comes upon the sons of disobedience. You know, MTV and movies and books and a host of today's role models, if you watch them, if you're a young person or single, they will constantly tell you one thing, and that's this. Sex outside of marriage is the best sex. Because very few of the characters, very few of the people are displayed in a marriage bond. They're always outside the marriage bond, defiling the marriage bond, and it sends a very clear but subtle message, and that is, want good sex? It's outside of marriage. It's where the best sex is. We are constantly told that if nobody gets hurt, as long as you both agree to safe sex and you're both mutually agreeing, then it's okay. Even religious leaders are saying that. You know, the Body and Soul Report, that's what it was called, of the Presbyterian Church that was rejected. Here's what, part of what it said. It recommended to the, to the USA Presbyterian Church. It said... 
that there is no single consistent biblical ethic of sexuality and it instructs the church to repent of its oppressive morality which it deems to be the work of white patriarchal heterosexist. Forget rules about who sleeps with whom, it urges, and do not restrict sexual activity to marriage alone, but celebrate all forms of sexual intimacy, marital, premarital, or postmarital. Paul calls those statements in verse 6 empty words. Empty words. Word empty meaning without substance without power, without truth, fantasy parading as a new morality, but it's all a lie. Immorality by any other name is just simply immorality, and it brings pain, and some of you hurt today even talking about it. It brings guilt. Some of you have that on your shoulders right now. It inflicts deep wounds, and I have to counsel them all the time. It destroys trust and the ability to trust. And it cheapens rather than deepens what God has created as the most wonderful experience two people can know, and that's joining together in holy love. It brings, ultimately, the wrath of God. You see that? The last line of verse 6. I don't think sex is necessarily more serious than any other sin. People sometimes charge the church with that. But let me say this. When a, when a group of people are, in fact, when a nation legitimizes or advocates adultery, fornication, sodomy, lesbianism, and adultery as somehow right, it indicates that culture, according to the scripture, is nearing irretrievability as far as a people and a culture. That's where, why sex seems so evil in the scripture because for decent people to get to that level means they've been so corrupted that they're nearing the end of the culture as Rome. And God begins to exact his wrath this may sound a little controversial, but I think with all my heart that evidences of God's wrath presently exist. When you look at the venereal diseases, I've talked to several nurses even after the service, the, the amount of syphilis and all things pouring into the medical community, not to mention AIDS, which is impacting millions, tens of millions of people even at this moment. You see, I really believe that those are God's warning shots fired across the bow of American culture. And those warning shots are saying, you better wake up. You better rethink this. Now, so some of you are going to probably say, boy, that makes me mad for you to say that, that AIDS or this, you know, because it inflicts kids, innocent people. Well, sure it does. When in the scripture can you see any judgment of God not inflict pain on the righteous as well as the unrighteous. Now why does God do that? Why when there was a famine, you know, the righteous were just as hungry as the unrighteous? I think for two reasons. First of all, when God's wrath comes, 
It punishes the unrighteous. But what it does, it awakens the righteous that they better take a stand or things will end. And I think that God could hardly make it clearer to us. You know, we want to work so hard to allow this area, just look at our culture struggling to make this area so legitimate. And the harder it tries, the more plagues that come forth, the more deaths and pain and injury, but we won't listen until maybe God has to write it on the wall like he did to Belshazzar back in Babylon and say, you're done. You're finished. How much more does God have to say? What do we need? Iron condoms now to protect ourselves? I mean, how, how much do we have to create in order to say, it won't hurt me? But then what's left? Nothing. It's lifeless. It's joyless. It's sterile. And yet God loves to give his people the rich intimacy of a healthy sex life. But it's got to be done by his way. Notice that brings us to the charge of becoming a point of light in verses 7 through 13. And let me say as you look there that Christians are not down on sex. And I hope you don't hear me saying this because sex is a wonderful gift. It's, it's I think, God's creative mind at its best. Somehow joining these two people in this intimate celebration of their lives. And it can be wonderful and it can deepen over time. It can be much better than it ever was at the beginning. But most people don't have that experience. It was only good at the beginning. And it got old. And we wore out. Look at verse 7. It says, Therefore do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly of this darkness, but you're now children of light. Walk as children of light. And then look at verse 10. Try to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. You know, that's an interesting statement there. And I have to say, it's a little awkward in the Greek, but it comes from a word, dokimadzo, which means, uh, actually what it means is not trying to learn, but test to prove the quality of. It was used of taking oxen out and you would, you would put, strap these oxen up and you would see if they could really do the job. And you know what I think he's saying here? If I might kind of change the meaning a little bit, but I think I'm more accurate than this, and that's this. He's telling these children of light on the front end who don't know they've got all this sexual experience on this side, but he's saying, you know, put that aside and put the Lord's principles to the test by faith on the front end and live them out and see if the quality isn't far higher than what you've been experiencing. That's his charge to them. See, Paul knows that a good sex life is a life in which two people come together and can abandon themselves to one another with no fear. The marriage bed is in, wrapped up with love and trust and protection and loyalty and a long-standing commitment. And the longer that commitment stands, the deeper and richer the sexual experience. Because see, it's not just two bodies coming together. That's the animal world. 
And though Phil Donahue says we're human animals, I don't believe it. I believe when two people come together, it's body, soul, and spirit that are celebrating a symphony of messages. And the longer those messages play of trust, acceptance, love, and those kind of things, the deeper and the richer the communion. See, intercourse means communication, conversation. So what happens when you're communing in that conversation? Just body speaking? No. In the midst of that, here's the messages that, that get played out in this deep symphony that are not cluttered by words in that moment, but it's still communicated just the same. I trust you. I believe in you. I've seen how much you've worked and sacrificed for me. I'm secure with you. That's the symphony of an unbelievable sexual experience. And you compare that with that lonely little flute that plays all by itself in most sexual unions, which just simply plays out the melody, I want your body. Doesn't even compare. Secondly, Paul says here that you'll outlive your culture. He says you'll convict it. Look at verses 11, 12, and 13. He says, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead expose them. And then down in verse 13, he says the same thing. He says to expose those things by the light. What does he mean by that? Well, again, a change of words might be helpful here, but the word exposed means to disprove. To show the fallacy of. Now look at verse 11 again. Don't participate in these unfruitful deeds, but instead prove the fallacy of them. Disprove them. Now how do you do that? Do you do that by going out and condemning people for what they've done? No. I think the church does that by outliving their counterparts. They see the quality of this union this life, this marriage. They say, boy, I wish I had a husband like that. I wish I had a wife like that. I wish I had those kind of commitments. How'd you do that? They see the love. See, that's the miracle Christianity wrought in the first century. With all that promiscuousness, with all those freedoms that, quite frankly, are over and above even what we're experiencing in 1991, but headed to, did you know that a... That a incredible revolution swept that world and what did people choose to keep doing it outside of marriage no they chose Christianity because the Christians had something in those relationships and in those intimacies and in that life that they didn't have now God's telling that to us in this culture on the front end and so I think what we need is, is Christian heroes. You notice down at the bottom I say the call for Christian heroes, young and old. Young and old. Singles, high school students, junior high students who are willing to take God at His word on the front end with no experience. That's, that's the way it works. It works by faith. And they say, you know, I'm going to do it a better way. I'm going to create a different movement I'm going to go away from the herd. I'm going to stand against the fantasies and the fallacies. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to test. I'm going to prove what God said, what's pleasing to God. I'm going to prove that what He says is really the best for me. And I only stand as a number of one here this morning. 
But I would tell you, God knows what he's talking about. He knows what he's talking about. Will you commit? Will you become a point of light? Or will you just participate in darkness? Let me, let me close with a quote from Bishop Frey. He's one of the conservative leaders in the Episcopal Church. And quite frankly, he's standing against the sexual compromises of a number of people in his denomination. But I like this guy. And here's what he says in his letter that he wrote, an open letter to the Episcopal Church. He says, and I quote, One of the most attractive features of the early Christian communities was their radical sexual ethic and their deep commitment to family values. These things drew many people to them who were disillusioned by the promiscuous excesses of what later proved to be a dying culture. And then he asked, wouldn't it be wonderful for our church, the Episcopal Church, to find such countercultural courage today? It would indeed. Let's pray together. And with your heads bowed, you might just ask, am I a point of light seeking to prove the quality of the Word of God? Do I want to be? And what steps, if I'm not, this morning, would I have to take now to make this truth my priority? Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.